welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast, number 144, and this week's show almost wasn't. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and two of the interviews I did last week didn't turn out, thanks to, well, who knows what, but one didn't record at all, even though it said it was recording, and another recorded, but the quality was terrible, so it looked like it was going to be either skip a week or talk for an hour, and I'm sure I know what you choose. But a couple of interviews later, and it's all okay, although a bit of a rush to get it all together. It wasn't the only thing that wasn't working this week. One of my camera lenses broke, and our oven died. Not cheap to replace, unfortunately, but nothing is these days. I know in many countries their culture isn't quite as throwaway as we are in some of the allegedly developed countries. They make things last forever. Having said that, a lot of technology is made to become obsolete. For example, I've got an old phone and an old computer, both of which work fine, but are too old to update the software on. So while they work, you can't use them. And that's pretty sad, especially when you're trying to live with creating as little waste as possible. Our two or three week warm spell came to an end today as well, and there's a flood watch on. But only for a day, and then it's back to warm again, or at least warm for here. Not Dubai or Death Valley kind of warm. Apparently it's been warm in Tokyo at the Olympics, but with the timing, it's early in the morning here, so I've not really been able to watch any. It's funny how people will watch some sports they don't even understand once every four years. Anyway, if you are watching it, I hope your country is doing well. We don't have any Olympic events for you this week, although we have an interview about a trade show, and walking around those can be a marathon. We're talking about balls, and there are plenty of those in the Olympics, although we're talking cheese balls. And we're also talking about the Chinese market, and China always wins lots of medals. So maybe we do have an Olympic-themed show today. And as for me, well, how about archery? Because listening to me is arrowing. Sorry. So this week we have conversations with Laura Thompson, Vice President of Trade Shows at PMMI, talking about Pack Expo, the good Crisp Company CEO Matt Parry, and Stone X Director of Dairy Market Insight, Nate Donne. So let's take a look at this week's news. Food Union is investing in renewable energy to meet its sustainability goals and, on a similar note, Fonterra is switching away from coal at its cheese plant in Stirling. Friesland Campina published its first half-year results and Tetra Pak and Stora Enso are partnering to triple Polish recycling beverage carton capacity. Arla is the first company to pick up the new SIG Robotic Sleeve magazine. A digital dairy project in the south of Scotland and northern England is set to create 600 new jobs. And Green Boy Group is launching Plant Dairy Protein. Ben and Jerry's announcement regarding Israel has caused a bit of a stir with retaliation and boycotts taking place and the Pathways to Dairy Net Zero initiative on climate change has also been announced. You can read all of these and a whole lot more at DairyReporter.com. And of course, you still have time to register for the free webinar on Dairy Alternatives that's set to go live tomorrow, which is Thursday, July the 29th. And you can also register for that on the website. We have a really good number of registrations already so far, so thank you for that. And hopefully we can increase that a little bit more. 
Let's get down to the interviews and this week our first guest is talking about a new product that recently launched and that's cheese balls. But these are no ordinary cheese balls, they include the ingredient Wellmune. To tell us about the new products and the company is the Good Crisp Company CEO Matt Parry, who we reached in Colorado. Okay, so the Good Crisp Company is based in Colorado in the US, but having chatted with you, I can tell that you're not from Colorado. So I wonder if you could give me a bit of background on the company and how it came to be located there. So you're right. Grew up in Adelaide, South Australia. So I was sort of always worked in the food scene. So I did a marketing degree and then worked out and worked for a company where we found brands around the world, mainly in Asia, and we imported them and sold them into the Australian market. So we have over there Coles and Woolies and, you know, Audi and places like that, and we would sell into them. So did that for over 10 years, actually, and sort of just to grow and to learn the industry and learn how to launch brands and what makes things work and, and what doesn't. So it was sort of scratched my entrepreneurial itch a little bit there, but I always knew I was going to start my own company. So as part of that that role, I got to know a canister chip manufacturer based in Malaysia, which is you know where most of them actually are, and so quickly sort of did a big deep dive on that industry and really realised there was an opportunity for a better-for-you alternative to the other canister chips out there. So was able to use my connections to build out a product that we wanted that was you know better-for-you, gluten-free, non-GMO, all-natural ingredients, things like that, but tasted really good. That was really important. It took us a while to get that right, the balance between having all the certifications and the health factor, and but also being, you know, tasting the best chip on the market so finally got that ready and about eight years ago we, we launched that in australia and, and it went well and, and continues to sell down there but we just even from day one just got more and more interest out of the u.s market so five years ago we launched here in the u.s and launched at whole foods and started to sort of grow from there and just kept growing in the u.s so much so that 2019 my wife and my three daughters and myself moved to colorado to really just focus on the north american market and growing it here and now we're in you know eleven thousand grocery stores here and sort of doubling our business every year so it's been a pretty crazy from where we started in little old adelaide bit bigger market in the u.s than australia that's for sure it's a really big snacking market as well. There is a growing focus on better for you and to sort of be part of that wave and riding up is really fantastic. And what products did you have in the range before the new product, the cheese balls that we're talking about? Yep. So our products are essentially potato crisps. So like I said, an alternative to Pringles. So in the canister, made of potato, but we don't use any fillers or anything like that. We have original, we have sour cream and onion, we have an aged white cheddar, an outback barbecue flavor. So we have those sort of canister potato crisps. And then, as you say, we just recently launched some cheese balls in a canister as well. And what was the reasoning behind cheese balls? Yeah, it's similar to when we looked at the um, sort of canister chip market. There was one or two dominant conventional players. They were iconic snacks that particularly in America, kids have grown up eating cheese balls and really like cheese balls. But now that they're sort of adults, they don't really feel good about giving those same products to their own kids, usually all the artificial flavors and things like that in the product. So here's an iconic canister chip similar to our sort of iconic canister snack. Can we sort of move a little bit sideways in our offering and offer another canister alternative? that's iconic but better for you so that was sort of the rationale behind it and then we launched that about two weeks ago and it's um, been extremely popular and really well received so i think our idea was right at this stage at least and how did it come to include walmune because you wouldn't necessarily associate the two together 
No, it's something I've been thinking about for a, a little while with our products. So the whole thing that we did with our potato crisps was to take all the nasty stuff out. So other brands, they use fillers, they use flour, they use all manner of cheap stuff just to sort of pad out the product and make it cheaper as well as artificial flavour enhancers and colours and stuff like that. So we're really big about stripping all of that stuff out and getting back to a, a sort of a potato, some oil and some natural flavourings on it. You know, that's sort of all a potato chip should be. But it just got me started thinking when we started to develop this new range is it's one thing to strip stuff out, but can I put better stuff back into the product? And this was even before COVID. And I was thinking, what's a sort of an issue that parents and families deal with all the time? And having three young kids, I know for myself, where we're constantly getting sick, we're constantly getting colds and flus from school and it's going around, you know, you just get better and then the next one comes through the school and through the family and all of that. So I figured, you know, immunity and staying on top of that is a really important part for families. And so I wanted to look at that. And then obviously that's become even more important with COVID. But for me, it started sort of from that rationale and thinking through that. The other side of it is my youngest daughter, when she was born, was born with a really aggressive leukaemia cancer. Um, and thankfully, she's all fine now. She's about to turn six next week. But it really got me to understand firsthand just how important our immunity is and our neutrophils and all of this. You know, when you go through chemo, it strips all that away and you're waiting with bated breath for it to come back because you're just so vulnerable without your immunity system. So it's been something I've been thinking about for a long time and wanted to try and include it in this product. And what are the benefits that Wellmune brings to the product? Yeah, it's a, essentially a supercharger for your immunity system. So as I mentioned, you have these neutrophils in your body, which is what your immunity is. It's in your blood and they go out and they attack all the colds and flus and the foreign things in, in your body. So what Wellmune does, uh, just sort of attaches onto those neutrophils and enhance and boosts their functions. So it's like giving them a little energy drink or something like that. They can go out more energy and do a better job of it. So the reason I like it is there's been a lot of clinical studies done on it. Sort of they did with kids at daycare, those that took it, those that didn't got less colds, less sick days at daycare, all those things like that. So it just helps your natural immunity just sort of be a bit of a booster for it. So that's essentially what, what the product does. Right. And how are you communicating that benefit to the end consumer? Yeah, we do have a little bit on our packaging, but it's mainly around our social media. I mean, it, it's pretty hard to communicate all of that and your rationale and your reasons on your packaging. The other side of it is we're conscious of, I mean, we're not a functional snack company. We're, we're just a snack comp, better for you snack company, but we wanted to sort of put this in there. So we do it mainly around our social media and we talk about it on our advertising. And when we talk to influencers, they talk about it and mention. So it's more of that sort of out of store messaging that we use, that how we have a bit more time and space to be able to chat that through as i said although we do mention we have a little blurb on, on the back of the canister about it as well do you think that that's an area that's going to grow that's going to be a trend that's going to go you've seen cheeses with probiotics we've seen cheese yeah. with added vitamins do you think that this is something that's going to take off more that you're going to see more of these definitely immunity is a growing area so i would assume that would flow out into snacks and to other sort of products to say with cheese and things i think there's an element of particularly i mean probiotics you've got the cultures in there and all of that which you align with cheese and other dairy type products and things like that as well so i think that's a good fit 
So why wouldn't switch over to immunity as well? So, but I think it's still early days where, whether or not it will have effect. When we talk to our consumers over the last couple of weeks, the response has been, hey, this is great. You know, I didn't necessarily buy this because of the sort of the immunity booster, but the fact that you put it in there shows that you understand customer and you're thinking about us and we appreciate that. So it's sort of a, a more of an added bonus rather than a, you know, function that people are going to grit. I think there's some good stuff out there, whether it's immunity shots or vitamins or things like that, that I think people are going to to get that. But um, as a secondary benefit, I think is where some value lies in additional snack or dairy products that could put these value adds into it. Is this available right across the US and is it in Australia as well? Uh, we haven't launched it in Australia uh, yet, but definitely across the US. So through our website, The Good Chris Company, you can buy it from there and we're starting to roll out into natural stores and things like that in the next few weeks. One of the biggest knocks about the stackable chips and the canisters is that the packaging isn't particularly environmentally friendly. How do you deal with that? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a factor. So our packaging is made from recycled cardboard and foil, things like that, and plastic. But definitely, it is difficult to recycle, being a mixture of materials with cardboard and, and metal and plastic. So we're working with the leading canister company. We're part of their pilot program to ensure that we're at the forefront of trying to develop some packaging that can be recycled more. And, and we're pretty close. In fact, we were hoping our cheese balls would have launched with a recyclable pack, but we had some issues around cheese, and it's a bit more of an oil a product so we really need a barrier there so we're close though we think by next year our cheese balls will be in a recyclable canister Um, and as we learn some more we'll change that over to our crisps as well so it's definitely a factor and and we're getting close which is exciting and are you planning on expanding the geographical range or any other launches in the obviously you've just launched this so you don't want something right on the back of it but what, what are the next steps I think definitely. I mean, we, we sell in so Australia already, Canada, US, down into Mexico. So there's been a couple of other countries. I think there are some areas, certainly I think the UK is one of those that have very similar snacking requirements, big fans of crisps, looking for better few options and things like that. And, and certainly around sort of dairy products and cheese products, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So I think there's opportunity. It's around as well where we're still a small young company that's sort of starting out and it's an incredibly expensive business launching chips and snack products so we've got to be careful about where we put our resources behind but yeah we're definitely looking at some other options in the next year or two and any new products you think in the next couple of years Within the cheese balls and the, the crisps, with him, they've got a lot of opportunity around new flavours and new formats and colours and things like that. So we're going to try and do some things with cheese balls, maybe around innovating in that area as, as well. Can't say too much about that at the moment. But, yeah, we think that there's certainly there's a lot of scope around those two base products that we can continue to innovate around and in, in other format or flavours, definitely. Number of flavours for crisps or chips, that's kind of limitless, isn't it? So. <laughs> It is. They get crazier and crazier, but they work. And I think it adds excitement and fun. I mean, part of snacking is that emotional fun element. You want to try something different. It's not a huge purchase. Usually you're guaranteed a pretty good tasting crisp, even if it's very weird flavors. So yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Next, we're going to have a look at the Chinese dairy market with StoneX, a company you'll know if you listen to the show every week because of the market update. But this is a bit more of an in-depth look at China because of the rise in Chinese imports in June. And to put it all into perspective for us is Nate Donne, StoneX Director of Dairy Market Insight. 
So how do you gather the data that you use in order to be able to come up with the market analysis? Our overall goal is to attempt to forecast dairy prices and advise our customers on when they should be buying or selling or, or what the risks in the market are. And it's our belief that it's really the global market, the market for import and exported dairy products that drives dairy prices. If any country has a surplus of dairy products, they're going to look to export that surplus and any country that has a deficit, either a short-term deficit due to weather issues or a sudden spike in demand, or a long-term deficit like China, is going to look to that market to find imports. And so it's where the last seller and the last buyer for this, these products find each other. So to aid in our modeling and forecasting of dairy prices, we watch the international trade flows very, very closely and, and model the international trade flows so we can hopefully predict where supply and demand are going to line up. So we track exports out of all the major dairy exporters, of, of about eight countries, and we watch where all those products are going. So we, we're tracking calculated imports into about 250 different countries. And obviously China is the largest dairy importer, and we watch their numbers very closely. And so it would seem that China is importing more in June. I wonder if you could give me some of the stats or the reasons behind that. Chinese imports this year have been incredible. The June number was up 24.4% on a milk equivalent basis from last year. In a normal year, 24% growth for China would be a very strong import. That would be a bullish number. But from January through May, their imports were running 40% above year ago. So this June number, while 24.4% growth is very strong, it's a slowdown from what we saw in January through May. The reasons, we're still trying to get our minds around exactly what's going on in China. We know that demand for fresh dairy products, things like pasteurized milk, Yogurt, which is a, a typically a drinkable yogurt product, demand for those products has been very, very strong as they're coming out of and uh, bouncing back from the pandemic. And so there's more of their domestic milk supply has been going into those fresh products and less of their domestic milk supply has been going into storable commodities like whole milk powder or butter or cheese. So with less domestic production of those storable dairy products, they've been relying more heavily on the global market to import those products. The recent Chinese import numbers did slow down significantly. We went from 40% growth January through May to just that 24% growth in June. But there's conflicting signals here. We just got New Zealand's export numbers for June. And there's a lag here between when the product is reported as exported and when it's reported as imported. So the product that left New Zealand in June most of that probably arrived in China during July. And New Zealand's shipments during June to China were very strong. I believe they were up about 83% from a year ago. So even though we had this weak June import number from China, the export numbers out of New Zealand make it look like the July number for China is going to be fairly strong. And farm gate prices inside of China are at record highs. And so it still looks like their domestic market is on the tight side. It looks like the imports are slowing down. We've been expecting the imports to slow down, but maybe they're not slowing down quite as much as the June number makes it look like. 
obviously everybody's looking to export to China, but is there ever going to be a point, do you think, where China becomes self-sufficient or close to self-sufficient? Not in the near future. Their imports are making up somewhere between 20 to, to maybe 25% of their domestic consumption. And that's a percentage that has been steady to, to maybe increasing a little bit in recent years. Just the cost of production, uh, milk production in China is very, very high. They have a limited availability of high quality forages. They import a lot of alfalfa and hay from different parts of the world just to feed to those dairy cows. The milk price there is in the range of 25 to $30 per hundredweight. So it's significantly higher than what we have even in the U.S. It's expensive and difficult to produce high-quality milk in China. They've been reliant on the import market since 2009, and um, they're not making much progress on reaching self-sufficiency. And so are we seeing consumption going up markedly in China? We're certainly seeing consumption growth for traditional dairy products or traditionally produced dairy products, stuff that comes from an actual cow. It's always difficult to get a good read on exactly what's happening with consumption in hard numbers because it's hard to get a good read on what's happening with their domestic milk production. Um, and you need to know that production to be able to calculate your consumption numbers. It depends on what you believe about production, but consumption is probably running 3 to 10% above year-ago levels this year. Obviously, you deal with many different parts of the dairy industry, from skim milk powder to butter to cheese to fats. Are you seeing differences between those categories? The biggest shift in the last 12 or 18 months has been on infant milk formula. China, I believe, has been the largest market for that IMF um, in the world. It was a fast-growing category. It's a high-value category. Like most governments, the official policy was they wanted to be self-sufficient. They wanted more control, more visibility into that supply chain. So there's been a number of different changes in regulations around IMF imports over the past five, eight years. So that's helping to tampen down the imports a little bit, but it seems that since the start of the pandemic, there's more people staying at home, more mothers breastfeeding, and less demand for that infant formula from all the major exporters. I believe the shipments are down. And so what would be the breakdown of the different countries exporting to China? And again, does that vary by category? Yeah, it varies quite a bit by the category. China imports most of their home milk powder from New Zealand, at times a little bit from Europe. South America has been creeping in there. Steam milk powder, again, comes mostly from New Zealand. Given where the price spreads have been, we've seen U.S. exports of uh, non-fat dried milk and skim milk to China increase quite a bit here recently. They will buy skim milk powder from Europe. The fats, butter, and AMF often comes from New Zealand. Cheese comes from a number of different places. It's really a mix depending on the individual product and where the brand preferences are and the relationships are between the major exporters in China. Is it pretty stable month by month in terms of all of the countries that are exporting to China, or are there any up-and-coming countries that are threatening to get a bigger slice of the pie, so to speak? China has been reaching farther out. For instance, they've been importing significantly more whey from Belarus. That's something that's developed over the past 12 to 18 months as their hog herd has been rebounding and whey prices have been very high in the U.S. and Europe. 
And again, they've been importing more, particularly whole milk powder from South America. Milk production in Argentina has been very strong. It looks to us like inventories have built up in Argentina. They've been more aggressive in getting that product out to other countries. China has been diversifying their import sources into um, some of the smaller other dairy exporters around the world, not just Europe, New Zealand, and, and U.S. Do you think this pattern will continue, or is it hard to tell? China's already absorbing 40 or 50 percent of the exports coming out of New Zealand. And New Zealand's milk production growth long-term here looks pretty flat. So do they really want to continue to take more and more product from New Zealand? That puts them in a difficult situation if there's supply disruptions or if New Zealand prices go through the roof. So from that perspective, they're probably going to continue to diversify away from New Zealand and look for other sources for uh, dairy imports moving forward. And does it cause any problems for countries if a lot of their production is tied up into exports to just one country? For New Zealand's dairy industry, I don't think it's going to be a problem. It has created issues politically. It's not just New Zealand dairy that's going to China. It's lamb, it's beef, it's wool, it's all kinds of commodities moving between New Zealand and China. And that creates political tensions. New Zealand's government just came out this week and was critical of China on some hacking-related issues. That has made the primary industries in New Zealand slightly nervous because they don't want to you know, upset the apple cart on trade. New Zealand was a major dairy exporter before China's rise. They're still a major dairy exporter to all parts of the world. They have the relationships in place. They have the access to these other markets. When we've seen Chinese demand dip New Zealand can clear the product into other parts of the world. But what we've seen over the past eight years is that China is typically willing to pay a strong price for that product. So I think they're happy to sell a significant portion of their production into China. They'll typically get a good price for it. If those exports to China dip, they'll be able to find other markets for it. And are there any other markets around the world at the moment in dairy that are particularly interesting or, by the same token, alarming at the moment? There's always something interesting happening, multiple interesting things happening in the dairy world internationally. Mexico has stepped back in as, uh, well, their imports have started growing again. Through all of last year, Mexico's imports were down and down significantly, 10 to 30 percent below year-ago levels. We're seeing them bounce back a bit now. It's not clear if the imports are going to continue to grow. Their domestic milk production is fairly strong. They were up 3% from a year ago in June. That's lapping over 2% growth last year. And this is in the middle of a significant drought in Mexico. So we've seen some rebound in Mexican imports, although their milk production is staying fairly strong. The question is, will the drought eventually have a negative impact on their milk production and uh, result in some continued strong imports? Right now, we're not seeing any impact on that milk production number. I'm not sure that the imports are going to continue to run as strong as they've recently been running. But overall, when we look at demand worldwide, if you remove China from the numbers, milk equivalent imports by the rest of the world are down this year and down something in the range of 5% from year-ago levels in April and May. So we've had this story about extremely strong Chinese demand, but it hides the fact that demand in the rest of the world is actually down. And I think we have to attribute that to the impact of the ongoing pandemic. 
We're continuing to see these lockdowns in different parts of the world. Economies are rebounding on paper, but I'm not sure that consumers are feeling a whole lot better if they're in a country with relatively low vaccination rates still. You mentioned the droughts in Mexico there. A lot of people are starting to take notice of changing weather patterns. We've seen issues in the Pacific Northwest. We've seen flooding in the UK, in parts of Europe, also in India. Is climate change going to, or has it already started to change the equation? There's obviously the direct impacts of severe weather, fires that that burn up crops, that uh, burn up barns, that kill animals, you know, floods that wash out roads and bridges and trap milk on farms. So there's the direct impact of the severe weather on milk production, but that's relatively small, relatively localized impacts. From a longer-term perspective, dairy cows don't like the heat, and the expectation or the fear, the discussions are around, you know, as the world warms up, dairy cows become less efficient, but the long-run research that I've seen on it is dairy cows don't like it when it goes from 21 to 38 over the course of two days. That feeling of being significantly hotter very quickly is the problem, stresses the cows. But the long-term increases in global temperatures, uh, the evidence says that the dairy cows can adapt to that. So the impact directly on the cows from the world heating up long-term looks relatively small. I think the bigger issue for the industry is consumer perceptions of dairy, dairy cows, and climate change. And that's where the dairy industry needs to be proactive, find solutions to reduce the emissions, and tell the story about what we're doing to lower the emissions, lower the impact of the dairy herd, and highlight the benefits that we're getting from this high-quality, nutritious product that the cows are producing. If you're like me, you're excited that events are starting again. I've already been invited to three events in Europe in the fall, and one that's definitely huge for the dairy industry in North America, although not specifically a dairy show, is Pack Expo, which takes place in Las Vegas in September, which is pretty much just over a month away. To get us even more excited about the event with what's scheduled is Laura Thompson, Vice President of Trade Shows at PMMI. It must be different having a, an event with people at it coming up. How have you approached an event that's going to be in person? Yeah, we're looking forward to it. We are very fortunate that we have a really good partner in the Las Vegas Convention Center, and they've really been kind of at the forefront in trying to bring events back. So they have a lot of protocols in place and have been an excellent resource for us as we're planning to bring the event back together in person in Vegas. And how's registration been so far? Has it been crazy because people are excited or has it been, I'm not so sure about being around people again? It's been going well. Typically with our show, people tend to register later. We're tracking really well with our registration. We do think we'll exceed about 20,000 attendees for the show. And we have spoken with several of the large CPGs who are talking about bringing buying groups to the show. You know, the one thing is people haven't had the opportunity to see this technology in person in 
over a year and a half. And there's a lot that has changed and a lot to see. And I do think people are looking forward to the opportunity to really see and touch and have conversations with people in person to help find what they need for their packaging and processing needs. As much as we all kind of tried to fill the void this past year with virtual events, just nothing can really replace that in-person experience. What's the situation going to be? Because I assume that, well, Pack Expo is big and it's international. What's the situation like for people coming from Europe or Central America, Canada? We've been waiting to see if anything has changed with some of the restrictions, in particular with regard to Europe. We do think, you know, there will be an impact there. We anticipate attendees, however, from Mexico and Canada. That's where we kind of see the most of our international attendees. That's easiest for those people to get there. And and a lot of those restrictions have been lifted. Due to the fact that we know some people may not be able to come, we have developed a virtual piece to this. It's called Pack Expo Express, where people can register and they'll be able to still search exhibitors and view all of the educational content for the show. We know nothing will replace in person, but we are cognizant of the fact that there are folks who just may not be able to come. So we do want to make sure we have some resources available for people to access information and content from the show. And how are exhibitors approaching this? Are they all raring to go as well? Yeah, we have over 1,500 exhibitors now and averaging about 10 to 20 new exhibitors signing up each week. So we have a lot of interest, a lot of people who really want to come and take this opportunity again to meet face-to-face and show their new technologies and solutions to customers. So that's been going well. We actually do still have four international pavilions that are going to be participating in the show. Uh, We have pavilions from Turkey, Italy, Denmark, and France. So we will have at least those folks coming to the show. We have some wonderful international partners that we've worked with for years that are organizing these pavilions of the show. As you said earlier, I imagine that there's a lot changed in 18 months or almost two years now. Yeah. And everybody, I think, has been so focused on just trying to get through and maintain production and adjust their operations accordingly. And there is a lot out there now. I know a lot of companies are looking to increase their automation. And there's a lot of really good new technology at the show that can help with their production. Because of the gap between the events, is there a lot of new innovation at the event this year? Yes, definitely. And we are going to have our Technology Excellence Awards where we're going to be highlighting some of the key new innovations in the industry. We also have our Showcase of Packaging Innovations, which is where we highlight award-winning containers and materials from the past year. And the good news with this is so much of these awards have been virtual in the past year, and we are going to have these packages in person on display so people can see them in person. As you know, sustainable and finding new materials and ways to package is huge right now. So we have a lot on display with regard to not only the new technology, but also new materials for attendees coming to the show. What are you doing in terms of safety protocols? We have our Pack Ready Health and Safety Plan, which I would say the best place to find the latest is on our website. It is evolving and changing as the times change. We will always maintain additional cleaning, additional spacing. The building is working with us on new food service options to really kind of limit contact. We also are 
trying contact-free registration. We want people to be able to come to the show and go straight to where they want to go. So anybody who registers by September 3rd will get their badge in the mail. So we're really encouraging people to register by September 3rd. We'll mail you your badge. You don't have to wait in any line. You can just show up at the show, walk straight in and start your day and do what you need to do. Our goal is to really kind of minimize any sort of large gatherings within the registration areas and the concessions and help facilitate people to maximize their time at the show and really do what they need to do, which is visit these exhibitors and find what they're looking for. I did want to also add that, you know, in addition to getting people their badges so they can hit the ground running. We have a lot of digital resources to help them plan in advance. We know people's time is very valuable and some people may only have one day at the show. So they can go to the website or our mobile app will be launching in mid-August. They can search by keyword, product category, industry, really kind of narrow down their search for companies that make what they need. And they also have the option to schedule an appointment in advance. So they can reach out to the exhibitors and they can really plan their day. So they know exactly who they're meeting with and when to maximize their time at the show. And what about directions? I know I've been to shows where everything's really easy. You've got A, B, C, D, and then one through a hundred or whatever. But then there are other shows where you have an appointment in 10 minutes and you're thinking, where the heck is G5? It's not between, it's not after F. Where's it? You know, so how's that aspect of it? Well, we have everything designated by hall. So you can easily look at the booth number and know which hall that booth is located in. And what are the days and hours going to be for the event? So the show is September 27th through the 29th. Monday and Tuesday, we're 9 to 5. And Wednesday, it's 9 to 3. What are some of the highlights that you have for the show, especially if it relates to dairy or dairy alternatives? We have brought back the processing zone, which I think would be very interesting for the folks in dairy. And it's really a dedicated area for food and beverage processing. Again, as you've said, sometimes it's hard to navigate and know where you need to go. This is one spot in the North building that you can go to and specifically find processing solutions. There's also a processing innovation stage. So the educational content on that stage will be dedicated to food and beverage processing. In addition, throughout the show floor, there I checked the website. I want to say there's over 500 companies that have indicated they have a dairy solution. So that's another tool. If you're looking on the website, you can search by vertical markets and you can check dairy and it will pull up any company that's offering dairy solutions from packaging to processing kind of runs the gamut of all of the solutions for the industry. 500 is a lot. That's great. Well, and then you can narrow it down. So I don't want to scare you. Um, you can narrow it down for kind of if you're looking for materials, as I've already mentioned, sustainability, another huge topic now is e-commerce. You can also narrow your search down by e-commerce solutions and sustainability solutions. And we have not only exhibitors providing solutions for that, but we have a lot of educational content. We have about 20 sessions alone on sustainability and 10 on e-commerce and we have over 70 sessions located on the show floor that people can go to. And they're quick. I know I keep going back to, we know people's time is valuable, but they're on the show floor. You don't have to leave the show floor to go to any sort of meeting room away from everything. They're 30 to 45 minutes, quick snippets, content for you to kind of get a good overview of the latest trends in the industry. You mentioned the presentations. Are those available so that if people want to listen to them again afterwards, that they can do that? 
Yes. As long as you're registered for the show, you can access the online content. So that's a great point. I know sometimes it's hard for you to catch everything when you're there, when you're running around and going to different booths. So all of that will be online. You just have to log in with your registration and you can view all of that educational content after the show. And one of the good things about the PAC Expo event has always been the fact that it's not just the booths. We're really excited. We have a new display that is called Pack to the Future. We are very fortunate to have very wonderful exhibitors and members who are willing to give us some of their historical equipment to use for this display. And it kind of runs through the whole history of the industry. We have about 30 machines that we're going to have on display. It's a very good snapshot of the evolution of the industry. And then we also have the Pack to the Future stage where we're going to be looking to the future, where we're going to be talking about the latest trends and developments. And this stage is really a forward thinking on the horizon type of developments for the industry. So we're excited. It's going to be interactive. Anybody who's in the industry, we think will really enjoy seeing this piece of the show. That sounds really different. Is there anything else that's new this year? The processing zone is coming back. We also have the showcase of packaging innovations. We're very involved in trying to develop the future of the industry through our education and workforce development program. And we actually have our future innovators robotics showcase that will be on display there, where we will bring in local high school robotics teams to show off some of their robots that they've built for competitions. In addition to the processing zone, we actually have several other dedicated show floor pavilions. We have the package printing pavilion, the containers and materials pavilion, the confectionery pavilion, and the reusable packaging pavilion. So there are a lot of targeted, dedicated show areas to, again, help facilitate people finding what they need at the show. And for those that can't make it, either for timing purposes or geographical issues, is there an online portion to the event? Yes, there's the Pack Expo Express. They can register. You have the option when you go into the show registration, you can register for the online or the in-person event and access the exhibitor content and the, the education content. And one new thing that I also wanted to add this year is we've developed what we're calling our Pack Match Program, where it is one-on-one -on -one consultations with industry experts. You know, we know that there are a lot of people who are new to the industry or startup companies who show up at the show. You know, there's 1,500 companies. And as you said, even 500 in dairy might be a little bit overwhelming. So they can submit a form starting August 16th. It'll be sent to one of our consultants and they'll be able to schedule a 30-minute Zoom call pre-show to explain what they're looking for and trying to accomplish. And then our industry experts will help provide them with some recommendations on who to visit at the show. And how do people register? Are there any deadlines or early uh, bird the specials? Main, uh, the main thing is they need to register by September 3rd. If they register by September 3rd, it's $30. And the key is they'll get their badge. We really want to make sure we get the badges in everybody's hands before they come to the show. I'm sure registration is going really well for that. I'll be interested to see what kind of numbers there are at events that I'm hoping to go to in the fall here in Europe, or whether I'll try to go and be stuck in a six-hour airport line to firstly prove that I've had my COVID vaccination and then to have to go through the non-EU line for the first time since Brexit. I can't wait for both of those. 
And that does it for another show. It's the major birthday month here in our family, so it gets a bit expensive, and it's also when school starts again, so more school uniforms, so more expense, as well as the oven. So a busy few weeks ahead. But then it always is, and it will be even more so if we do get to travel again. I've no idea where some of my recording equipment is, and come to think of it, I don't even know where my passport is anymore. But we'll face those issues if and when it all happens. Normally, right after the podcast, I start on Thursday's news, but this Thursday is not only a news day, it's also webinar day, so a busy day ahead. I hope you'll join us for that, and I also hope you will join us again next week for the podcast, when who knows what the interviews will be if I have the recording gremlins that I did this week. So until then, I hope you have a great week, stay safe, take care, and as always, thanks for listening.